Good morning. Well, my name's Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church, and I'm really glad that you're here today. Wherever you are in your faith journey, I'm really glad you're here. As Matt already said, one of the questions we're asking this morning is, how do you know what you know to be true about Jesus? How do you know what you know to be true about Jesus? Are you with me on that question? Some of you may simply say the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Can I get an amen? amen? Some of you grew up with that. You're like, absolutely, this is true. The people around me believe that. And I have never had a reason to question that. That's what I believe. Some of you are there. But as we talked about last week, not everybody's in that camp. And we, we shared some information last week about some of the Barna data on where people are in our country right now in terms of what they believe. And we said last week that about 25% are deconstructing are looking at kind of what they grew up with or what's been handed down to them, and they've said, you know what, I'm going to take it apart, I'm going to examine it, and there may not be anything left. And our object lesson last week for deconstruction was this old piano that was passed down to Kim and me, that was her grandmother's piano, and we said there was a a time when it played beautiful music, but that time had passed. And there was a time when we repaired it, and actually, if you look carefully, you can see some wood pieces here and some plastic pieces where we actually repaired it, and it could still play beautiful music. But there, there came a time, though, when that piano was simply a piece of furniture. It simply held pictures in memorabilia, but it no longer played beautiful music. So we've been in the process of taking that apart, and we've replaced it with a keyboard that can play beautiful music. Now, traditionalists out there, don't, don't give me a hard time, okay? Keyboards are still good. You could also keep fixing the piano, all right? And that's all good. So I'll put it aside here for a second, but that is our picture of dismantling faith. What does that look like? So we, we, we brought, you know, some of these statistics in about how lots of folks, especially younger folks in, in Gen Z, are uh, no longer claiming a religious affiliation, that they're in this category of the nuns. They don't check anything. But at the same time, as there's Alarming statistics, there's people who are dismantling, deconstructing, there's also hope, because like three out of four people are open to spiritual things. They want to grow spiritually. They have some belief in God or a higher power. So the question then becomes, how do we 
step into this moment in our culture and point people to the hope of Jesus? How do we help them to hear and understand the beautiful music of Jesus, the beautiful music of the gospel? Now, I want to come back to this idea of deconstruction just for a minute. I want to give you a concrete example of this. So this is, this is real stuff, okay? So if you're new with us today, uh, we don't have it all perfectly figured out as followers of Jesus. Believe it or not, sometimes as a church, we do things that if we had it to do over again, we would do that, them differently. Anybody ever done that in life? You said, you know what, as a parent, as a grandparent, as I, you know, if I had that to do over again, I would do that differently. If your answer to that question is, no, I've done, never done that, we're going to have to talk about pride and humility. Okay, so I'm going to turn the clock back. This is a real story. This is like 14 years ago. 14 years ago. I'm, I am just finishing up my teaching career. I'm getting ready to come on staff here at Community Church of Greenwood. My kids are like, uh, one's in elementary school, one's early middle school, one is starting high school. That's where my kids were. Glorious times as a parent. This is the summer prior to the summer of lockdown in my own household with my middle child who caused us some problems. Loves Jesus now. It's a great, it's a great end of the story. But I'm, I'm going to turn that clock back. So it's it's like 14 years ago, and there is this traveling organization that's putting on an evangelism event for young people. It was something called the 99. And 99, the 99 represented the number of um, like teenagers who died of preventable causes uh, every day. Really creative, a lot of energy behind that. And this organization came to town, and we were all in. I was, I was all in on this. And uh, they, they built this big tent. It was over by TJ Maxx and all that. I mean, right here on the south side. Lots of people involved in this. And part of what that was was big tent, and you had all these different rooms. And you had a, like a drunk driving room, and you had a, uh, a drug overdose room illustrating these causes. Then you had a hell room. My youngest was a demon in the hell room. Then you had a presentation of the gospel. Then you had follow-up counseling, okay? Lots of great things about the event. Seriously, I mean, there was creativity, there was all that. But a little bit of emotional play going on here, a little bit of we're going to hype up the fear. And my kids... Afterward, years past, would say, Dad, what were you thinking with that event? And I'm like, you know what? It, 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 it seemed like a good idea at the time, and there was a lot of good to it. But you know what? If I'm really looking back, and I'm really honest about that, some of the methods that we used in that, even the way we presented the gospel, were probably misguided. We're probably misguided. Okay? Now don't 
Don't mishear me on that. I'm all about evangelism. I'm all about the gospel. I don't question the, the biblical doctrine of hell, okay? But to, to put an elementary school kid as a demon in that room, grabbing onto people, okay? I don't know. Maybe I would have thought differently about that. My middle guy, middle schooler, ended up holding hands with some girl in the hell room, I think, and came out. So <laughs> I'm just keeping it real here. So it's like, how do you process this stuff with kids? So we've talked about this stuff over the years. And part of what we've had to do is separate the truth of God's Word from fallible, misguided people and practices. Can we do that as followers of Jesus? Can we hold what we do, can we hold people up in light of Scripture and say, I want to hang on to this, and maybe I need to rethink that? I believe the answer to that question is yes. Because what we don't want to do is throw it all out and not hear the true, beautiful music of Jesus. It's not about the instrument itself. It's about the music of the gospel and the music of Jesus. Amen? So Luke, Dr. Luke, companion of Paul, he's going to set out to write a gospel, and he's going to give us a, an entree into some of these big questions about how we know what we know to be true. Now, some of you, again, are sitting here, and you get, I got it all figured out. Some of you, maybe you're like questioning. Some of you are going to go off to school, and you're going to learn things, and you're going to have to retest it all. Um, I got my kids that are grown in their 20s, and occasionally I might reference my, my beautiful granddaughters, and I'm going to do that real quick, because the statute of being able to use them as sermon illustrations is the clock is ticking, so I'm going to get them in while I can now. But I've got to, had my, my granddaughter's solo operation last Friday, and uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old is around the basement, and she picks this up. This is, this is on our bookshelf in the basement. Pops, what's that? Well, that's a good question. Okay, so what is this? Well, it's, it's a carving from Oberammergau, Germany, okay, which is a depiction of Da Vinci's Last Supper, which is a rendition of the Last Supper in the biblical account. Lots of layers <laughs> of history. We didn't talk about uh, historical methodology and the atonement to a two-and-a-half-year-old, okay? But we did count the disciples. And, we, and, and she says, you know, she said, Pops, and we talked about the cup and the bread, and she said, Pop, why is the bread ripped? That, wow, that's a great question, okay? The only reason I bring that up is to say, you know what? Someday she's going to look me in the eye, she's going to look her mom and dad in the eye, and she's going to say, why do you believe what you believe about Jesus? How do you know that it's true? Why do you base your life on this? And friends, we got to have answers to these questions. Amen? Amen. Thoughtful, faith-based, intelligent answers in a conversation where we are actually listening to the real 
questions that people have. So wherever you are in this process, whether you're talking about grandkids and great-grandkids or, or kids, or you're just getting started off in your adult life and you're like, what am I going to make this about? What is my life going to be about? Well, the good news is Luke has some answers for us. So does Peter. So does Paul. So I'm going to stop telling stories, and we're going to get in the Word. How about that? Let me pray first, though. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's true. And we ask now in the few moments that we have together that you would open up our minds, open up our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, we come into this space this morning with our own questions, our own doubts, our own hurts, and yet somehow this account, it's a couple thousand years old, changes everything. Lord, I pray that my words are clear, that they're true, and that they're helpful, and that above all, they bring you glory and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, let me take you back to this passage in Luke. It's the opening to Luke's gospel. Luke 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. We talked last week about Luke's purpose and his process. We said that Luke has a clear why is that you might have certainty, you might have more certainty, which is safety, which is security, which can withstand whatever life has to bring. And we said that Luke had a process, and that was a careful investigation of the eyewitness accounts. So as we take another round at this passage in Luke, and then we supplement that with a look at a passage from one of Peter's letters and another one of Paul's letters, I want to make three key observations that help us understand how we know what we know to be true. And the first is this, and it's simple, belief in Jesus is based on the true account of historical events. That's the basis for it. That's the basis. Luke makes the claim that we can have, find certainty in the eyewitness testimony of those who walked with Jesus, of those who saw him alive, or saw him live, teach, perform miracles, forgive sins, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and appear to them. To the disciples, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, more than 500. And he's basically saying, look, if you don't 
If you don't believe this to be true, go ask them. Check this out. So at the basis of our how do you know what you know to be true, it is grounded in the history that these things actually happened. Now, some of you, we all come from different backgrounds on this. Some of us have taken like New Testament classes in college where you you might have had professors say, well, that's not really the way it went down. That this this is like oral tradition when it was passed down and passed down and passed down and it's all lost in translation. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've, you know, uh, as I did, took some of those classes, went on to graduate school in in English of all things and, and had lots of things thrown at me that over the years would have caused me to question that. Maybe some of you, like me, have gone through a process of checking out the historical evidence. Maybe you, you, you went back and you read Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or you read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, or more recently you read Tim Keller's Reason for God. Whatever the case might be, maybe that's you, and you've gone back and you've said, I've actually looked at the evidence. And I've got a solid footing for that. If you haven't done that, I would highly encourage you to do that. Because sometimes we think this, we think, you know what, if I really asked the questions, if I really dug in, if I really read the scholarship, I'm afraid of what I would find. The good news is you don't have to fear All truth is God's truth. And it can withstand any of your questions. Okay? Two recent big books, and I I, I can't pretend like I've read them cover to cover. N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection, like seven, eight hundred pages. How do you know the resurrection's true? Can can go toe-to-toe with any scholar in the world on that. Richard Bachman, another big book about the eyewitness accounts. Okay. Again, if this is you and you want to dig in, I don't have time to give you the arguments in a couple minutes, but do your own investigation in this. If you need help in where to go, let's chat, let's have a conversation. What I don't want you to do is avoid the questions. Dig in, ask the questions, read the stuff. God can handle your questions and he can give you the answers. So that's Luke. little perspective from Peter and Paul. And the second belief I want us to consider this morning is people who trust Jesus and people who doubt Jesus are both complex. All right, this is what uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says. This is Peter. He's writing to the church that has been in exile. They've been scattered. They're under persecution. And Peter says this, what is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this 
with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. We're all called to give a reason for the hope that we have. We may operate in different circles. We may need different types of answers based on the people with whom the Lord brings into our lives, but we all should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. But one of the things I appreciate about this passage, and and I've always loved this passage, but Peter has an appreciation for the complexity of people. It's not simply intellectual reason. It is that. But it's also, um, don't be frightened. Nobody doubts in a vacuum. All right? It tends to be uh, hardship comes, relationship change, context change. Part of what Peter's saying is, hey, don't be, don't be frightened. Keep, you know, keep Christ in your heart as you pursue these things. There's a complexity to human beings. Now, God is sovereign. God is in control. God's word is true. God is always the first mover. And we tend to go through a process of coming to faith. That involves kind of our brain, involves our emotions, and it involves our relationships. That's just reality of the complexity of how we've been created. The process of doubting or deconstructing or questioning, all that can also be some of this, some of my emotions, and some of my relationships and my circumstances. One of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat reality, and it also has an appreciation for the nuance and complexity of human beings. Now, let me give you another passage from Colossians. This is Paul. Colossians 2, and he's writing to a church, he's writing to those he knows and those whom he has not met, and they're battling wrong teachings about Jesus. That you have to have this like special knowledge, that you have to have these like ultra strict rules, and that you have to have these like crazy esoteric experiences with Jesus to confirm that it's true. And this is what Paul says, Colossians 2, 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. What does Paul say? Hey, look, Be encouraged in heart, core of who you are, your thinking, your emotions. Be encouraged, be strengthened at the core of who you are, at the emotional level. Does God care about your feelings and your emotions? 
Of course he does. Okay? Sometimes we create this false dichotomy between our thinking and our feeling. Can feelings get us in trouble? Of course they can. God also cares about our feelings. United in love, knit together in love, there's a social component to how we come to faith and how we doubt. So that they may have complete understanding. There's a depth of knowledge, there's a depth of understanding that Paul says is going to matter here. We're complex people. Anybody want to argue with me on that? Look at your past week. Have you had high highs? Have you had low lows? Are there times when you feel this close to Jesus? Times when you feel separated? I got a range. But what's my confidence in? Now, third point. Growing in certainty, which is what Luke says this is about, is a relational process. It's a relational process. He continues in Colossians 2. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. What's Paul saying here? Look, if you want to grow, if you want to grow, if you don't want to be deceived, if you don't want to be taken off course, it matters what you believe. It matters what you think. It matters how you put this together with your reason. And it matters who you're in community with. And it matters how you look at your circumstances. All of that matters. But it's a relational process that's both understanding the truth that is outside of you and also growing in the knowledge of Christ who is in you. It is a both and. It's not pure historical intellectual stuff. It's not pure experiential stuff. It's both. And we got to pay attention to both. Are you with me on that? Okay. It's a both and. Now, let me give you some action steps. Today's one of those messages I want you thinking. If you walk out of here this morning with a few questions and you're like, wow, you went through that fast and that's okay. We'll come back next week and we'll, we'll clean up whatever we, we need to. And I want you to consider going on a journey where you're learning more about this stuff. Let me give you three action steps. First one. First one. Share with another follower of Jesus your real story of how you came to trust Jesus. Share with another follower of Jesus your real story. Get rid of the cliches. Get rid of the comparisons. Everybody's got a story that matters. But take an honest look. Maybe you have some of those experiences. You're like, wow, that was really hard and painful. Don't just throw it in the bucket of church hurt and say, I'm done with it all. 
Or if you're having a conversation with somebody about that. Let's look at it, hold it up, talk about it. That's the first one. The second one, start building your own gospel conversation bridge. I'm going to come back to this one next week, and we'll go into some more detail. I'm just going to lay it out for you in outline form today. Does it matter what you believe about Jesus? Absolutely it matters. Does your identity in Christ matter as you go to share with somebody? A hundred percent. Yes, yes, yes. Paul says we are to be ambassadors for Christ, as if God were making his appeal through us. So what are we called to do? My identity as an ambassador is in Christ, 100%. And as an ambassador, I'm called to represent Jesus to a culture that may not agree with me. How do I do that? I need to understand the culture a little bit. If I live in the U.S. and I'm an ambassador to France, what language do I need to learn? Just English. I'm not speaking no French, right? No. You need to learn French too. You need to be bilingual. We need to speak the language of the gospel. We need to know the words of Jesus. The the, the beautiful music of Jesus needs to overflow. And we need to be fluent in our culture. Now, as an ambassador, I don't lose my identity in Christ. I don't lose that faith. I don't become a traitor. Okay? I'm also not so much a warrior that I'm just going to beat people down. I want to understand. I want to have a conversation. Okay? We'll come back to this next week, but as we look at our culture... Our culture may not be saying, hey, show me the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Anybody, have somebody ask him that this week. Or, or you know, hey, Jason, how, can you really trust these eyewitness accounts? I, I don't know about you, but I don't have people asking me those questions all, all the time. But they are asking questions like this. How do I know who I really am? People are asking about identity. How do you really know what is right? How do we really know what is true? People are asking these questions and they care about these questions. The clock's got me today. I want to come back and I want to dive into those next week. But these questions that our culture is asking, that we have answers for, we need to be able to lean in and have dialogue about them. Because the good news is, we have the right answers. Not because we're smart but because of the eyewitness accounts that say it's true, that Jesus really died and he really rose. And then the final step for us, walk across the bridge with faith, 
love, confidence, and humility. We're going to come to the communion table, and we'll take a little bit extra time today, and I want you to have just some, some time to reflect, some time to examine. And when we, we come to the communion table, what we're really doing is we're remembering, we're reflecting on the basic truths of the cross. And as we think this morning even about how do we know what we know to be true, we remember the fundamental truths of the gospel. And we can have humility and confidence because Jesus didn't look at us and say, you know what? He's really smart. She's got it figured out. She scored 82% on the morality scale, and now I'm going to accept her. We are saved by grace through faith. We come to the cross empty-handed, and that's the good news that we reflect and remember. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come to the table. And this morning, I want you to take the elements and take them back to your seat, and then we're going to receive together. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thankful, even as we try to think hard and remember what you've done for us, and we think about the ways you want to use us. We can only do it because of what you've first done for us. So help us as we remember this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Come now. If you're a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean you have it all figured out, but you've taken that step of faith. Come to the table and then hold the elements in your hand and we'll receive together in just a moment. I would invite you now to hold the bread in your hand. Bow your heads. When we come to the table, what we do is we remember, and this stuff actually happened, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and gave it to them. He said, this is my body given for you. Take ye, do this in remembrance of me. May we receive the bread together. same way Jesus took the cup. He said, just as you receive the bread, we receive the cup. He said, this is, this is blood. blood, the blood of the new covenant, blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So just as we receive the bread, may we now receive the cup together. Would you pray with me? Father, as we receive, we simply say thank you for your sacrifice through your son for us. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us, for loving us. 
for giving us the Holy Spirit, for reminding us that we are your children. So as we reflect, as we repent, remind us that you are with us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.